Ooh, new episode time. Cue the music. Y'all, I'm so excited for today's episode. We're talking to Dotricia Rollins, who is an all-around badass person that I am very, very lucky to know. How you doing, Dotricia? Hi, Sophie. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My first podcast interview, so I am especially excited. Okay, let's see. My name is Dotricia Rollins. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I identify as an organizer and a cultural worker and an oral historian. And in my day job, I work as a bookseller at Kara's Books and More, which is the South's oldest independent feminist bookstore, where I also work um, as assistant director of Kara Circle, the nonprofit programming arm of Kara's Books and More, where I do our outreach and community partnership and run our programming. And outside of my day job, I do many other things. Most recently, I rolled off the board of Access Reproductive Care Southeast, which is a reproductive justice organization and abortion fund, quite literally funding abortions across the South. And that is where a lot of my work has been focused is in reproductive justice. Outside of that, I do organizing work with the Black Alliance for Peace, which is an all-Black and African organization that is anti-war, anti-oppression, and anti-imperialist. And I also organize with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. I guess my most recent and longest work, and pretty much the most exciting and newest thing I've ever done, is Georgia Desk A Southern Liberation Oral History, an oral history project that I collaborate with Ashby Kumbahi on. And we've been doing that for the last two years now, actually, this summer, where we've been recording world histories in our community with the purpose of organizing and liberatory work. Yeah, that's me. Ah, thank you so much. There's so much going on with you. So thank you, thank you, thank you for spending the little bit of free time that you have doing this interview. I'm really excited to talk about everything that you said, but I wonder, before we move on, could you tell us just a little bit more about Georgia Dusk, the project itself, but also what you were saying about the liberation angle? Yeah, Absolutely. So Georgia Dust came about from my work at Karis, and that is my connection to Ashby. Uh, we met at Karis, and Ashby asked me if I would be interested in collaborating on an oral history project because Karis's history is so long, almost 50 years, that many of the people who have contributed to that history are elders. And so when Ash asked me, my response was, I don't know what oral history is, but sure, I'm down for a new project, a new idea, because as you can see, I like to stay busy and I really do love a new idea. And I had already had some interest in archival preservation work. And so oral history just felt very natural once it was explained to me. And so when we approached the work, it was always in service to liberatory and organizing work especially because that is where most of my efforts are focused. We started out with this research question, which is how can oral history be used as an intergenerational organizing tool? We started thinking about what we wanted, how we wanted it to function and how we want it to be 
in service to our community. We knew that that we wanted it to be an intergenerational project, that we wanted to learn from both our elders and um, peers. This is 2021. But this is at a time where we were also looking at the landscape of reproductive justice and the attack on reproductive rights. It was also where I was very firmly rooted. So I was on the board of access to reproductive care Southeast. I was doing practical support work. And so we decided to focus on reproductive justice work because we thought it was the most urgent and where we have the most connection, where we know the most people. And so that's where we began. And so from there, we really dug deep into thinking about what reproductive justice is, understanding the four tenets of reproductive justice, the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, the right to parent a child in a safe, sustainable community, and the right to bodily autonomy. And so our approach was to really take those four tenets seriously and to think about the gaps in our community knowledge and history for ourselves that might be in service to the rest of our community. And so we thought about, so who are all the organizations? Who are all the organizers in service to abortion access and abortion care work, extending that out, digging deeper into ourselves and our own knowledge into, okay, so what are the other intersecting work? Family separation work is reproductive justice work. We started thinking about midwifery as liberatory work, doulas as people who contribute to this whole ecosystem of reproductive justice. We scheduled a meeting with um, Dr. Bahadi Kumba and Dr. Belly Garshefdal, um, who are in the Women's Resource Center at Spelman. And <laughs> Dr. Garshefdal asked, have you done any research? <laughs> and our answer was no, we're just winging it. We know people, we know organizations, we know things. Go do your research and come back and talk to us then. And we took them seriously. So we visited Georgia State University archives, Duke University, where Karis's collection is located. We went to Smith College, which holds a ton of reproductive justice collections, including Sister Song and Sister Love. We went to the Auburn Avenue Research Library to look at the Zami Noble collection. And we started doing our research and trying to piece together what we were really trying to accomplish and to help us shape the questions and things that we wanted to ask people. And seeing who had oral histories already, I think one of our participants had one in the early 2010s, listening to their oral histories, listening to other people's oral histories to just get a better grasp on how we wanted to carry our work forward. And we began recording oral histories in September 2022. And we've recorded 11 oral history since. I love all of this so much. And I love how focused y'all are on the role of liberation in the project and how oral histories can fit within that. And I feel like that sort of moves us along nicely, right? So for this podcast and for the Solidarity History Initiative at large, we're thinking about how it is that those of us who do memory work, right? So those of us who are archivists or historians, community historians, academic historians, etc., how we can use the work that we do for the causes that we care about. So we're thinking about how it is that we can plug in. And it sounds like y'all are doing that very intentionally. And I love that so much. And I wonder if you'd be willing to say a little bit about how you came to this. Like, how was that? How did this idea emerge among you? Was it just a given that if you were going to do anything, it was going to be for liberation? Did these ideas come to you via books or via other people? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
I think there's a few different entry points. And it's a question I've actually been sitting with myself for the last couple of months since I entered this MLAS program. I'm really trying to figure out why the heck I came to this grad program. And I think the most honest answer, the most like truthful answer that feels like right for me is, and this might be controversial, we'll see. In 2016, Fidel Castro died. Uh, Fidel Castro was the leader of Cuba. And I remember being on social media and there were these conflicting messages about his death that was really confusing to me because I didn't know a ton about Cuba. I didn't know a ton about Fidel Castro. But the thing that stuck with me the most was I saw two pictures on the internet. I saw um, a picture of Fidel Castro with Malcolm X and I saw a picture of Fidel Castro with Alice Walker. And everything that I had known about him until that moment from school was that he was not a nice person, he was not a good person, and that the people in Cuba were suffering. If Malcolm X and Alice Walker fucked with Fidel Castro, why would I not? And so I went from there. Thinking about the history that is taught to us and the history that is hidden from us and what it does in service of U.S. hegemony. Those two photos led me to then visit Cuba um, the next year. Also in the same year, this library and conference was happening in Atlanta and these radical feminist and queer librarians and archivists were wanting to host a fundraiser for Kara's Circle and they needed a representative. I was a board member. And so the team was like, you like libraries and archives? Like, <laughs> in a big picture way, I like libraries and archives. I still didn't know a ton. So I went to this fundraiser and I was just like really blown away by the queer feminist, like radical people who were doing this work in their fullness of themselves and they were talking to me about how libraries and archives can be into risk to liberation work. And I think those things combined, I immediately, I remember getting a little button from one of them that said like feminist librarian. I remember posting it on my Facebook and I was like, I'm going to be a librarian. And then that changed to be, I'm going to be an archivist. I had no fucking idea what an archivist did or was. But I was interested and I couldn't get out there. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I think over time, I started to learn more about what the role of libraries and archivists um, are in the community and in the world. And then my um, political development also started happening. And so they just happened in tandem. And I think it would have been maybe like 2020 or 2021. We were hosting a virtual program for, um, the book I want to say the title is Celebrate People's History with Josh McPhee, who um, is an artist and is one of the people who runs Interference Archives, and Charlene Carruthers, who is an organizer. And on this program, Charlene Carruthers said something to the effect of, our movement needs more archivists. And I was like, it does. Why don't I just do that? I've been saying this is what I want to do. But how about I become an archivist in service to our movement? And that really set me off. So those things culminating into that one statement 
pushed me into the direction that I am in now. Yes. My goodness. Our movements do need more archivists. So let's let's segue at this time to you becoming a quote-unquote professional archivist by being in an MLIS program, right? Let me just preface this by saying we can edit out anything you want to edit out later. You are, and uh, correct me if I'm not correct, you are at the University of Alabama School of Library and Information Science and part of their new program, the Social Justice Archives Cohort. So you're part of this first cohort, um, and this is coming through a grant that that program brought in to develop this curriculum. And I'm just taking this from their website, but they're trying to what they're trying to do is recruit and support BPOC paraprofessionals, right? So people who are doing the work but don't have advanced degrees. And I'd love to hear from you any any thoughts that you have about this work, about the program. I'm very curious about your reasoning for thinking that a structured educational program around archives would be beneficial to you, given the work that you do, and presumably the work that you want to continue doing. Yeah, that's a good question. And also, you read their website way better than I did. <laughs> um, I think I have, I have a long answer for you, because it's another thing that I, I was talking to a friend yesterday. I texted her. I was like, why the hell? that I joined this grad program and then she turned the question on me and was like, why did you? And my answer was funny. And she was like, why do you have such rational answers for everything? So I had been interested in grad school, like in theory, like I had never looked into a program. I very offhandly, the day that we were at the Arbor Avenue Research Library, um, went to for Keeps Bookstore, which is right down the street um, on Arbor Avenue, where my friend owns a bookshop. And we were sitting in there talking about how we were so envious of people who were in grad school. It seemed like they were learning cool things. And I said, if someone pays me to go to school, I'll go to school now. I literally walked out of that door. And two minutes later, both Ashby and my friend Sierra King sent me the flyer for this program. And they said, we have to go. Uh, it sounds perfect for you. I'm really good at talking myself out of anything. Uh, that one thing does not fit my description, so I'm not going to do it. But it did feel perfect. I applied very hastily. The application was due within two weeks of when I actually found out about it. And then I went to um, Ghana for an organizing school and then found out when I got back that I actually hadn't submitted everything. So the application had been pending that entire time. I was gone for almost a month. <laughs> I got the application in very hastily. And what I was most interested in, my answer to my friend yesterday is I am a very structured person. And I actually thrive in structure. And I was interested in being taught and learning in a very structured environment with what I thought would be other people who were interested in social justice work. What I really thought is that I was joining a cohort of organizers who were just going to get this degree and apply it however we want it. That is not true. And I don't want to edit anything out because I'm always honest and people can suck it later. But I really thought it was going to be a program of like paraprofessionals like myself who were interested in archives, who were doing social justice work, who maybe needed the degree to be a little more legitimate so we could maybe get some funding or do whatever else with it. Um, and guess I'll get a little bit of training because I, I like to be trained in a thing. And they're focused on BIPOC people. I was like, oh, this is my time. It was very funny. It's 2020. I said, oh, the world is on fire and everybody's putting out a DIA statement. This will be the best time for me to apply for a grad program with my terrible undergraduate degree. They'll give it to me because I'm Black and it's true. They did. 
<laughs> that is honestly the thought process in which I had when I applied. And when in my application, and I've been holding on to this throughout the entire program, is that I am not interested in working in anybody's institution. Never have I been, never will I ever be. And so that's not to say that I might not get a job because I need a job to pay my bills, but that is not ever my final work. Anything that I do is always outside of what a day job is. And I'm not ever bound by any job or career or whatever. And so I'm really in this program because I wanted to be trained in archives. It's also just the stuff. It's for them. It's not for me, which is very apparent in the curriculum that has been handed to us. And I can now understand the criticism of academia, that it really de-radicalizes people. Um, and I'm very glad that I came in with my own Marxist Leninist <laughs> ideology and principle. You said the social justice aspect is for them and not for you. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. Justice and a capitalist system is no justice for anyone. For me, it is just reform. And so the idea of social justice is limiting no matter what. It's a reformist idea. And so I think I probably stopped identifying with social justice language or as a social justice warrior, (laughs) Uh, probably around 2019, 2020. I think something broke in me in 2020, as it did with many people and in this country, And I found myself very frustrated with the idea that, what are we doing any of this for? The same thing keeps happening. We keep saying, vote like you never voted before, vote blue no matter who. Well, that's not working. You can put a Black person in a leadership position. You put Obama in the White House. And what if you do it? You ban military bases, over 400 military bases on the continent of Africa. That's in service to who? Imperialists. U.S. hegemony, I, in the last couple of years, have become completely disillusioned. And I just think that the social justice language that is used in this program and used more widely is very stifling. What is the answer? What is the end goal? Where are we fighting for? Where are we going? Do we really think that we're just going to reform our way out of this? I don't believe so. And so I don't think we will solve anything by just putting people in higher positions. I think we will just really maintain the status quo. And it feels like that is exactly what we're being taught. It seems like in all of my classes, the answer is just, oh, we just got to get more BIPOC people into the library and archives still. To do what? Other than to be a face in its place, doing the same things that a white person would have done. But now you can justify it because you got a Black person to do it instead. Yeah. I'm just curious. I haven't heard you use the word solidarity. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. Do you ever think about solidarity in your work? Specifically that word? Do you find that liberation works better? I wonder if you could just reflect on that for a moment, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I think about solidarity a lot, actually. And okay, this is highly specific, but I think about the attack on Asian people with the COVID-19 virus. And there there became like this rhetoric of, of hitting different racialized groups against one another. What archives and history have taught me when we're actually finding and learning the history that we 
need and want is that there has always been solidarity across our movement and that we do ourselves a disservice or our country does a disservice to us for us when they don't teach us this history. And I use the example of learning even recently that Yuri Kochiyama is the person who held Malcolm X as he died. Yuri Kochiyama is an Asian woman who organized the Black people. That is solidarity, right? And I think about the ways that history, actual radical revolutionary history, shows that we actually have more in common than not. And so I do think about solidarity. I think that we need more solidarity. And I think it is hard for people to really conceptualize it or think about it or actualize it when they don't know that there has been a long history of solidarity throughout time, across continent, across the world, working class people have been in solidarity with each other. Even though like Georgia Desk is hyper-focused on Black people specifically, I think there is something to learn from what solidarity means in our organizing work. An organization like Sister Song, uh, when I was in their archives, which I never knew this, they thought about these four communities, these four sectors of how they wanted their reproductive justice work to collaborate. And it was Black, Latinx folks, Asian and Pacific Islanders, and Indigenous folks. And like these four racialized groups would contribute into this whole thing that we call reproductive justice. I think that's incredible. I think that should be highlighted more. I think that we could all benefit from understanding what commonalities we have and understanding that we have one common enemy and that we have to fight together to achieve liberation. So we need solidarity to achieve liberation. And so they should be talked about together at all times. Just to close the gap, I wonder, so you've mentioned this several times throughout, including just now, but I'd love to hear it explicitly if you don't mind. I'd love to hear you reflect on the role of history in solidarity. So both the history that maybe we're not being taught, but also the history that we could create by having more archivists in our movements. So when I first decided I was going to be a movement archivist, is that the first thought was we have to be preserving the history of our organization. Um, and I'm thinking even more, I guess, like specifically with the ways that our work has been intersecting in the reproductive justice movement. It wasn't just reproductive justice organizations that came out into the streets when Roe was overturned. It was so many, so many different sectors of organizers came out because they understood like what this meant. And there's been, I think, more conversation around like the intersection of reproductive justice and other areas of work, like abolitionist work and economic stuff. With abortion funds, we understand that people have to actually be able to pay the end abortion, but why can't people pay? Why, like, why, like, what are the barriers to access is the question. And so I think by preserving our histories and then reflecting on the histories that have been preserved, we can learn from the past to shore up our present for a future. The way that I learned about the American Disabilities Act, I watched this film called Crick Camp. And in that film, they talked about organizations like the Black Panther Party, who when they were having, I think like a, a sit-in or something, that the Black Panther Party came and show solidarity and support. I think those kind of histories have to be illuminated to us constantly, but we have to do the work. And so I think that archivists have a very unique role in our movements, and that is 
supporting us with finding the materials, but also supporting and preserving the materials um, so that future generations of organizers don't have to work so hard to learn these things, that it is already readily available to us so that we don't feel like that we're always starting from zero and that we're having to recreate things that we actually have this long history of struggle in solidarity with one another with the goal of ending oppression for all people and that if we can keep that momentum and we keep that history alive, that we can get out of the way of ourselves and <laughs> stop the infighting and collaborate with one another because it is going to take all of us. We're up against a very big machine. Ah, uh, Dartrisha, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for everything that you shared. This was amazing. I think this is perfect. And thank you for helping me think about these things. <laughs> this was really wonderful. And thank you for being my first podcast. Yes, first podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. This was just a delight. A big, big, big thank you to Dotricia Rollins, of course, for being our guest today. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you to Andrew Quo, as always, for the music on our show. Check out our show notes and our website for links to everything that Dotricia mentions, including the fantastic Georgia Dusk Project. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, friends. Bye.